welcome to Success in Brief. I'm your host, Roseanne Filicello. In every episode, we spotlight successful women in the law. We discuss with them their journey to success. We talk about the difficulties and the trade-offs, along with the highlights and the benefits, and about what success means to each of them. We hope to inspire you with these stories on your own path to success. Hello, my name is Roseanne Felicello, and this is Success in Brief. I'm thrilled today to welcome Risa Haggard-Courier to our podcast. Risa is the director of Fairfax County Department of Animal Sheltering, and she has spent most of her professional career with organizations focused on the humane treatment of animals. She has held previous positions at the Humane Rescue Alliance and the Humane Society of the United States. Earlier in her career, Risa served as counsel at the U.S. Department of Transportation, and she also worked as counsel in the United States House of Representatives. I'm excited to speak to Risa and hear more about her success. Risa, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Roseanne. Let's jump right in. What was your path to becoming an attorney? Did you have any attorneys in your family growing up? You know, How did you get there? You know, I don't really have any examples of attorneys, um, and I, I wish I could say it, it came from something like Ally McBeal um, or something like that, <laughs> TV show influence, but it was really just something um, I always wanted to um, be an advocate for the causes I believed in, and um, a lot of the skills, writing and reading, um, and Speaking just seems like they lined up um, and opened a path into the law for me. Great. And and so what did you think about law school once you got there, given you didn't really have any examples uh, in front of you? You know what? I'm one of those rare people that I actually really enjoyed law school. I, I enjoyed learning about the cases. I, I enjoyed um, becoming a better writer and uh, learning how to just take a lot of information and quickly distill the essential facts and um, how to represent and advocate um, for a client. So I thought it was a lot of fun (laughs) in in a strange way. um, I think there was definitely some painful points. Um, I think civil procedure procedure and contracts were were two courses that I didn't particularly enjoy, um, but I did really enjoy courses that I didn't think I would like, like business organizations and law and the regulatory estate and decedents estate and constitutional law, because so much of what you're learning in law school is really teaching you about the American system of government and being informed and educated uh, citizen of our country. And it's very empowering and it's enlightening. And so I really enjoyed a lot of that content. You went to um, law school out in Arizona, right? And as well as undergrad there, is that right? That's right. So I'm I'm from Arizona. So I was uh, lured in by the very affordable tuition prices. And of course, wearing flip-flops year-round didn't hurt. Uh, so I stayed uh, and went and did my undergraduate at the University of Arizona in Tucson. So I was exactly an hour and a half away from my mother, which required her to call before she got in the car to come see me. And then I'm <laughs> And for law school, I didn't fly all over the country and was really wanted to go to an East Coast school. Um, but just the tuition and and I my thought is I was going to go into nonprofit or government at some point and I didn't want to take on all the student loan debt. And so um a woman I, I knew who who also had gone to law school and was working for a nonprofit, she said where you can get an affordable education and boy was that great advice because um my tuition at asu i mean of course this was quite some time ago was about eleven thousand a year at law school which you know was just non-existent at the time and um it had and and i think for a lot of people with the state schools um asu you know we had an average student to teacher ratio of 16 students to one teacher and so it was just really wonderful education. And of course, you know, having sunshine and being able to study poolside is is a really nice fringe benefit. <laughs> There's a great draws there. So um, I, and first of all, I think that is fantastic advice. 
And I think that law school and college has only got exponentially more expensive now and out of reach um, in some ways. But if you, especially if you're planning on not doing the big law route, um, you really should, you know, be mindful that you don't want to have um, a financial sort of weight on your back that you have to then pay off, you know, for the next 20 years. Because I know people that are still paying off law school loans, you know, today they graduated law school almost 20 years ago. So oh, it's something it's to avoid if possible. It's a huge factor. And I think, um, you know, any any advanced degree is really looking at, you know, factoring and sitting down and doing those calculations. What's your salary going to be versus what is your student loan payment? I mean, some people, they have parents when they were able to get their school and paid for, but I, I paid my way um, through most of my undergraduate and also through law school. So cost was a really big factor and and where I ultimately decided to go to school. And I was, you know, at the end of the day, I had that law degree in hand. Um, I passed the bar. And so ESU was a wonderful choice and a wonderful experience for me. I remember um, the financial aid office at my law school used to have a sign on the door that said, yes, I mean, if you live like a lawyer while you're a student, you're going to live like a student while you're a lawyer. <laughs> and I think exactly that's right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's also something, you know, if you, if folks are considering going to law school, looking at the cost of living in uh, the city where the law school is, I mean, Phoenix at the time when I went to school is very affordable. And so very different from east coast and uh students um having to make really challenging choices with trying to find housing that's in their price range we used to have um you know four of us in an apartment but you know that was normal (laughs) yes you have to you have to get be comfortable with intimacy So you did eventually get to the East Coast, though, because you're in uh, Fairfax County. So how did you make the transition from Arizona to the East Coast? Yes. So I um, in my third year of law school, I had the opportunity to, well, first of all, back up a little bit. I, I spent both my summers of law school um, working for the main society of the United States in their D.C. office. And so... I really, during that time, got exposed to um, the DC environment, and uh, as they say, you know, caught caught the swamp fever, and decided, well, this is really where I want to spend my career because if you want to make change and you want to effectuate uh, change in your field, DC and New York, but DC for policy is definitely the place to do it, and. Um, so my third year of law school, through my contacts at the Humane Society of the United States, we were able to start a ballot initiative in Arizona. Um, Arizona is one of the few states that actually allow the ballot initiative process. And um, we started a ballot initiative to ban bill and gestation crates, which are forms of confinement for animals on factory farms. And um, Vilt crates, of course, are used for vilt cows, and just eating crates are used for um, pregnant pigs. And um, so I worked through H- with HSUS through that whole process, and um, we were able to get that um, initiative on the ballot successfully. And then we were able, the Arizona voters passed in, but with a 60% margin, which is very huge, is that wonderful opportunity and had nationwide impact. For, for farm animals around the country. Um, and so at that point, I was uh, really centered on wanting to have a career in animal welfare and go back and work for HSUS in, in DC. But then uh, again, that financial aspect kind of kicked in and I had well, student loans that I needed to pay. And I also recognized that I had a lot to learn as a young lawyer, and I really wanted to understand how the government worked. And so I had applied for the Presidential Management Fellowship, which it's, there's a couple um, tracks through the federal government you can pursue if you're interested in, in going. I mean, of course, you can apply for a council job, but then you can also look at uh, an honors attorney position that they have, they have that program. And then they also have, have the residential management fellowship program. And that is a developmental program to the federal government. And um, 
so I was able to get selected as a PMF and um, secured a position at the Department of Transportation. And so that's what ultimately took me to uh, DC, fresh out of law school. That's great. So that was your first job um, in law school. That's fantastic. So what, what kind of um, skills and things do you remember picking up in that position? You know what, that was, I, I spent almost five years uh, working with for the federal government and I really looked at that as almost like a postdoctorate or a, a, an additional graduate degree. And I always tell um, students when they're interested in getting involved in policy, either regulation or legislation, my advice is always try to get in working on Capitol Hill. And you might start by answering the phones or in the mail room, um, but you will quickly move up and you will quickly get a portfolio where you are juggling a lot of different things and a lot of different portfolios, but you are part of the decision-making process and you are seeing how that process happens and how uh, lawmakers are influenced and so I think that I can, I mean, I could spend the whole podcast talking about what I learned um, in those years with the federal government, because I was working on the administrative side, working for the administration, but then I also um, ended up working for committee staff um, as part of uh, that part when I was detailed um, to to the committee that I was, uh, that I was liaisoning with. And so you really see both sides, right? When you're trying to move a bill through Congress, you have the administration pushing for pieces, but you have Congress who ultimately is holding the purse strings and seeing that collaborative or sometimes really not collaborative process. <laughs> it, is, it is learning. And I also had the opportunity to work on uh, regulations as well and see that process. Um, and, and, so I think ultimately um, for any young lawyer, if he wants to influence change through policy, I, I think the investment in going to work for the federal government is a great one. And I think it's a great place to be a lawyer. Uh, you're learning a lot. You have job security. And my experience in the Department of Transportation is just, it was a wonderful culture. It was a wonderful environment. I had so many people that were truly invested in me um, and helping me grow and learn and were mentors and um, supporters and advocates for, for my professional development. And of course, I didn't know that, right? As a young person, that was my first job. And it's something that I've carried with me always. Uh, and how I had that opportunity to have so many wonderful leaders invest in me. And that's something I try to pay it forward today. And did you straddle more than one administration while you were there? I sure did. So um, I started and it was uh, George W. Bush. And then I was there through the transition into uh, President Obama. And that was fascinating because um, my portfolio is I was working on um, public transit. And so to see the two, uh, two administrations have quite a, a different approach to transit and the value that they placed on transit and um, investment in uh, advancing transit projects around the country. And the different viewpoints really did trickle down to the policy level, right? I mean, that's, that's just so fascinating, I think. Uh-huh. Were you given sort of different directives under each administration, I expect? We, we were. I mean, I think, though, especially the work that I was doing, um, which is liaisoning uh, with Capitol Hill and seeing that shift, um, the priorities definitely shifted between the two administrations. And, uh, you know, President Obama, like President Biden, um, that we're seeing today has just a very, uh, you know, public transit and uh, making sure Americans, all Americans, can get where they need to go um, is a big priority. And it's so important, especially as, you know, the infrastructure continues to decay in, <laughs> around the country, that there there be money and resources put into it. So that's fascinating. So after the, uh, your time at, in the federal government, though, it looks like you took a few years off from um, working. So 
Tell me about that and what made what caused that shift for you. So I took some time off. Um, I ended up having uh, two children in less than two years, and uh, and then a spouse with a very busy job. And uh, he's my husband is also a reservist in the military, so he had two jobs uh, that were very busy. And so trying to balance all of those. Um, and so I, I decided to leave the federal government. And I mean, back when I was there, you know, teleworking wasn't really an option. There just weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of flexibility uh, built in to the work environment that I was in. And of course we see that space pandemic just did a huge shift, right? And <laughs> now because, you know, we've, we've created more flexibility. And so now working moms can, um, you know, don't have to have that disruption in their career. But at that time, I just, it was, it was something that I felt like I needed to do for my young family. And so I did take some time off. And, and during that time, I also just had a lot of time to really think about what I wanted for the next steps in my career. I knew I wanted to return to the workforce. And I, I was living in Virginia at the time, um, in Northern Virginia, just in Fairfax County, where I am today, I'm just outside of the DC area. And I started paying closer attention to what was happening in the Virginia General Assembly, which is the state government, um, the elected body where I lived. And I started to see that uh, the, that advocates were trying to get through just basic protections for animals. And Every single session, it was like the same group of legislators were obstructionist. And it was like things like, we want to give a dog three more feet on a chain. You know, it wasn't anything radical. It was things that would make a big difference in the lives of these dogs that were living outdoors. And um, then there was also an issue of, um, in, in Virginia, there's all sport and quoting um called fox pinning where where what would happen is um foxes are trapped from the wild and placed in an enclosure and and then people bring their their dogs in to try to capture the foxes and you know rats are made it's a it's a it's essentially you know a gaming um activity and so that's happening uh, in Virginia, and so um, advocates tried to be on that for several years, and and had been un- unsuccessful. And this just seemed shocking to me that this this type of engagement, this isn't humming. Uh, no free chase was involved, and I couldn't understand why we were allowing this in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so I ended up getting together with friends, and we formed uh, a political action committee in Virginia. And it was the first of its kind, a political action committee to represent animals and the Commonwealth. And so um, this, we, we named this organization Humane to Million. And what we did was um, essentially uh, create a voice for the animals in Virginia through the political system. I didn't really know what a pack was. I actually had to Google it. <laughs> No. <laughs> but it's just not right. But it seems like the right thing to do uh, based on the little bit of the new. So um, just the right people came together and the right doors opened. And um, so so during that time where I was home, I was able to form that organization and, um, and, and really create change in the Virginia General Assembly. That's fantastic. So you were you were still busy. Well, yes, even if I was just home with those little ones, I would have been busy, but adding uh, the Humane to it was a nice actual outlet for me. And it was something that I could do once I put the kids to bed. And you know what? I shared the Virginia General Assembly with those two little ones in a stroller many times. (laughs) And, uh, you know, they just, they learned about the government process at a very young age. I'll just say that. (laughs) It's wonderful. I actually think it's great for kids to see um, the both of parents participating in public, you know, whether it's going to the legislature or appearing in court or 
you know, doing their job, just seeing that they're that they're able to speak up in their community, I think is is very important. Yeah, it is important. I mean, we're we're away from our kids a lot from um in order to do these jobs. And I think to help them understand what we do all day when we're separated from them is really important and bring them in and and help them understand. Um when I was uh one thing that my son said when he was small and I, I was working for HSUS, you know, doing policy and regulatory work, he said to me at some point, he wanted my attention for something and I wasn't able to give it to him. And he said, you know what, you say you spend your days helping animals, but I never see you actually helping an animal. <laughs> I don't have this idea that I'd be like, you know, saving saving animals along the side of the road which we do but it's like he expected this direct like understand obviously at a very young age that you're doing things through the computer and the phone that actually impact the animals as well nothing like kids to call it black or white right (laughs) they're the best so um in November 2014, you went back into more of a full-time position at the Humane Society of the United States. So you shifted from federal government um, to full-time, you know, animal welfare, basically. So, what made you um, decide on making that shift? Well, I also need to go back into the workforce and uh, going back into a nonprofit and working for the Humane Society of the United States, which is is the largest animal welfare organization in the world. Um, they have a, a very large presence in every state in the United States and then also around the world. They have about 70 different um, uh, seven country offices right now. and. So they are a legislative, regulatory, um, corporate reform, uh, really a, a lobbying litigation focused organization. So that was a very natural segue for me um, and using my law degree, but then doing it to advocate for animals. And at HSUS, I got to work on state issues. So I worked in Tennessee on animal fighting and was able to get um, a bill passed strengthening their um, uh, strengthening the rate the, the state law for animal fighting. And then I was also able to work on federal and even international um, laws. And so it was just such a, a, an exciting and interesting place to be. And, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily practicing law. I wasn't um, working in their counsel's office, but there's no question every single day I use my law degree uh, when I was working there. That sounds like a great position. Um, and you held that for almost four years. And then you moved on to um, the Human Rescue Alliance. Is that the right order of events? <laughs> I get yeah. that right. And so I was I, I was at HSUS, yes, so for about four, four years. And um, then moving to the Human Rescue Alliance, which is in an a sheltering organization based in Washington, D.C. And um, D.C. and uh, HRA is a, a direct care organization. So that was my first time moving into an organization that, you know, I, my office is upstairs and downstairs is our hundreds of animals. <laughs> and so it was a really community-based organization. So um, HRA had been serving the DC community for 150 years through its legacy organizations and truly had a hyper local approach, you know, just very deeply based, very deep roots into the community. And so after working at this very macro level, it I really wanted to do something where you are building something and you are effectuating change through your relationships with people. Um, and I think going through, walking through two different administrations and then at HSUS, you know, working through three, I worked through the Trump administration and engaging um, with the Trump administration and also on Capitol Hill. You see that all the things that we got done through the Obama administration, through regulation, executive orders were suddenly dismantled. And so it made you realize how fragile this system is, right? And and how it it was sort of this 
awareness that if you want to change things, uh, truly make a difference for animals, it might be through that person to person contact. Um, Mother Teresa has a saying that if you want to create change, don't wait for the leaders to do it, do it person to person. And so um, that really inspired my decision to move to an organization that was doing that work in a very grassroots way. And um, I also, I think at that point, I needed to have that connection with animals in my career. I'd been so removed and um, I was doing a lot of work for animals that are really in the shadows. So farm animals and wildlife, animals that I wasn't necessarily seeing, but I was trying to speak for them and these um, legislative bodies. And so I think I needed, um, I needed a little bit of time just to restore my connection with the work and the cause and moving to an organization where the animals are right there and the people that needed help coming in through our front doors. Um, that was a very powerful, um, powerful transition in my career and something that really helped me regather and um, think about kind of the next season and the next shift of what I wanted to do professionally. Sure. So at HRA, um, they're rescuing animals. Are these animals that are homeless? Is that, is that who they're rescuing generally? Yes, so HRA is uh, the Open Admission Shelter for Washington, D.C. It's a private organization. And so they have a contract with the District of Columbia to provide sheltering services for the animals. And they also provide animal control. So when you call and you see a stray animal or an animal that's been abused or neglected, it was our officers that would respond. And then during my time at HRA, we actually went through a merger with an organization just outside New York. Um, it's called St. Hubert's Animal Welfare Center. It's in... Um, New Jersey in the Madison area, and they had three campuses. And so uh, during my time as an executive there, I got to be part of the organization doubling in size. And so we went from two campuses in DC to through adding three more campuses in the Northern area, doubling in staff, really refocusing our mission and um, taking and we ended up having 16 animal control contracts. And so, um, going through that process of how you uh, double your double an organization pretty much overnight. I mean, you're working, 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 and then all of a sudden it happened. And um, so uh, that was an incredible learning experience and something I think not many people could go through a process like that. And uh, so I, I, I'm using a lot of the lessons from uh, going through that merger today in my position. Let's talk about it. About a year ago, you left um, Human Rescue Alliance and joined uh, Fairfax County Department of Animal Sheltering as the director. So what um, brought about that change? What made you decide to make that additional shift? And tell us a little bit about your career, you know, your job today. Yeah, so um, I had, I was at HRA and I had a couple of people reach out and said, this job is coming up. The, the current director is retiring. And of course, this is this is my community and uh, a community that I um, felt very connected to. And so to to take on the opportunity to um, run the only open access shelter in that community was just too good and too exciting to pace up. And so, of course, um, you know, moving into a director level right the buck stops with you and um, that's a lot of pressure i wasn't sure i, I wanted to be in the hospital yet um but ultimately i i had a lot of conversations with people in the community and about the direction they wanted uh things to go uh with animal sheltering and animal programs and um also fairfax county is and I, I may be a little biased, but it is truly one of the best run jurisdictions in the entire country. Um, we have an incredible leadership team here. Um, our elected officials are wonderful and very, very friendly to animal issues. Um, it is a community that is very passionate about animal welfare. So all those things just really contributed to my decision 
to move into this position. Um, and then also I was actually excited about the prospect of moving back to government. And uh, I really enjoyed my time in the federal government. And it's I also knew moving to um, a municipal agency have its challenges, right? I've been in the private sector where you can kind of be lean and mean and pivot and um, you know, be creative. And um, I knew that municipal government meant I saw a lot of red tape and um, things will be slower, but at the same time, uh, to have such a great infrastructure surrounding the shelter and other programs and departments to connect with um, was just very exciting and appealing. And so I'm very glad that I ultimately made the decision to um, move over to Fairfax County. It sounds great taking up um, a different role and a most important role probably at the organization as the leader. That sounds like a uh, a great shift. Um, so, did you encounter any sort of pushback in making that transition from private back into uh, federal? Oh, not federal, but back into government. I guess to county government. Well, I I think it was a transition. Um, just learning. Uh, you know, you have to get back into uh, lots of acronyms. <laughs> and uh, I, I haven't got back. It's not quite as bad as the federal government. When you you can communicate an entire sentence in acronyms, uh, we're not like that here. Um, but what I found on the county level is that, um, you know, the federal government is is very bureaucratic heavy. And it, it is very challenging to get things done. And I find on the municipal level, that's just really not the case. And um, we have been able to um, make some changes and move in a different direction. And it hasn't been that complicated. So one of the things that we're really trying to do is everyone thinks is the municipal shelter is kind of the place of last resort. They think of the dog pound and this, you when know, I tell people what I do for my job, there's usually two reactions. One is, oh, how sad. I could never work there and see those poor animals every day. And then two, the other and the other response is, oh, I what a dream. I would adopt every single one of those animals. And you know, once you you're you're in the shelter and you see um just how much cleaning is required and how much how many hours our staff's been cleaning every day, you know. That is an itch you don't need to scratch. And I, I'm finally leaving the empty shelter until they get the right adoptive homes. Um, but I also can foster animals, which is very nice. <laughs> so the other side of it's sad. I could never do that. And what I am trying to debunk that. That is not what we're about. This, the shelter, hope and opportunity. Um, animals come to us. And we really give them all the tools they need to have their second chance. So if that they need behavior modification, we have a trainer on staff. We also have a bunch of wonderful volunteers that are trained in behavior modification and training. Um, and then we also have an amazing contract with a veterinary provider. So uh, we had a little dog come to us recently named Buttercup. Buttercup was found on the side of the road and uh, a puppy, a little German Shepherd puppy, and his back legs were completely paralyzed. He had a curved spine. And our initial assessment of Buttercup was he has some serious issues and euthanasia might be the best option. But we had some consultations with uh, a couple of different vets and decided, you know what, we can treat Buttercup. We can provide him with the support he needs to be successful. And we ended up getting Buttercup into water therapy. And so Buttercup was able to warm his back legs and was able to heal um, during his time with us. And because of all the attention and love he received in our care, Buttercup is walking on, he was just recently adopted this weekend. And so that is the kind of shelter that we're trying to build, um, a place where animals really do get the second chance that they need. And we are also trying to make sure that we have a kind of an organization that's giving the second chances that um, the people of our community need. And it's very challenging right now to be a pet owner. And, uh, 
it's challenging, it's right? It's very expensive. It's very expensive. And so veterinary care is incredibly costly. And um, not only is it costly, but it's also difficult to get because we're having, we're experiencing a nationwide veterinary shortage. So that's a factor. But the other thing that we're seeing in Fairfax County, and it's also a challenge up in your area and really nationwide, is um, the lack of pet-friendly housing. So you know that about 70% of Americans have at least one pet. But then the availability of housing that allows those pets is just shrinking. And so it's really difficult for renters to find housing that accommodates their pets. And so um, that is something that housing is a big issue, obviously, uh, for anybody to tackle. But we are working with our county's housing administration and um, also uh, building relationships and bridges with other organizations working in this space to see if we can create some long-term solutions. So uh, families that have pets are having to make those hard decisions between keeping their pet and keeping a roof over their head. It's important work, and uh, especially in these trying times for a lot of people. Not having, I mean, it's hard enough to have access to healthcare as a human, <laughs> and even harder, I think, to have you know healthcare for our animals sometimes. It is. Do you feel that your um, sort of perspective as a woman has affected sort of how you do your job, or you know, your perspective on how you should be doing your job? You know, how the fact that you're a female has. Um, had any effect at all on your career? Oh, that's that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, I absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm, you know, when I was working at the Department of Transportation, I, I think I, I'm, this statistic may not be completely right, but I think about ninety percent of the department at that time was was male, and you know the. The experience I had there was that um, obviously being a female and a min- you know, being a minority of uh, mostly male workforce, um, it, you know, it taught me a lot in, uh, you know, in, in communication and, and um, in engagement. And now we work in an industry that's mostly women-led. And um, I, for example, at County Animal Shelter, my leadership team is all women. And so that too comes with its own challenges um, and and also its its own set of opportunities. And so I think it definitely uh, shapes how I lead and how I communicate and engage. Um, and and it also you know I'm aware of the blind spots because we're serving we're serving everyone in the county, not just women. And so we need to be make sure our communication and our messaging and how we engage is inclusive of everyone. And so, um, so yes, I, it does. I think that um, being a female leader, and um, I definitely have. I, I've, you know, been at places in my career where I've tried to maybe suppress those things that um, that kind of make me me, like um, my empathy and emotion and sensitivity. And I think I have found my stride and I'm very comfortable with empathy and being caring and being a natural part of how I lead with my staff and being communicative and available. And um, I think those aren't, those aren't characteristics that are inherently just female, but I think that's something as women that uh, we may we may be a little stronger. And we also sometimes feel more self-conscious about. So, you know, stronger in, but also feel like we shouldn't be showing that side of us. Right. Yeah. So you've made a number of different shifts in your career, as we've discussed through the years. As you made those changes, did you rely on others for career advice? Are there specific people that you went to, or did you rely mainly on your own counsel? How did you go about making those important decisions. 
You know, that's, that's a difficult question. I think, um, I, when I make decisions, I often consult, I'm, I'm a think out loud person. So I do like to consult people that I respect and I value, um, their opinion. And so any shift I made, uh, was, was based on reflective conversations, um, including, you know, my husband and friends. And I, I, I'm very fortunate that, um, you know, some of the women I went to law school with and are met during that time, I still seek their counsel and their wisdom as we're all kind of navigating our, our careers in very different ways. Um, but I also, for me, those decisions are, are also very personal and I always try when I'm looking at two options to choose the one where I'll have, I always choose the bigger life, choose the choice, make the choice that maybe is going to push me where I'm going to be uncomfortable, where I'm going to grow and there may be uncertainty. And uh, rather than the one that I'll feel safe and comfortable. And so um, I still feel very uh, fortunate that in this position, I get along every single day and I have amazing people that I work with and they are incredible teachers and I get to grow and learn from them. And um, that I, I also have an incredible community that is teaching me things and showing me um, where their values are. And, and um, so, so that's really, um, I, I feel very confident in the decision that I made with, with moving to this position is a learning and growing opportunity. I'm not ready to, to just glide yet. <laughs> I love that. That's a, it's important to be you know, comfortable with being uncomfortable, I guess is, but I think it's definitely something to live by. So speaking about living, you do have a life outside of, of your career. Um, so how do you balance it all? Um, especially now that you're back to full time, um, you know, such a big job and uh, at the, as a director of the whole department. Yeah, it, and I, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't think I do balance it. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think it's it's a day by day thing. I, I'm very, I, I have a, a spouse who he was able to shift his career a little bit, so he's more present and around for our family. Um, that's made a huge, huge change and me being able to really lean in and focus on, on the work that I'm doing because I'm out of the house, um, like five days a week at least. And, um, you know, this job, there's also evening and weekend commitments. And so trying to, to juggle that around my son's lacrosse game schedule. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's having that support has been really important, um, but I think I and I actually spent a lot of time this weekend thinking about that because it's it's important to to try to have a life and your life not become your job. That's really tricky with work with animal welfare because for all of us that work in this field, it's a vocation. We're here because we feel deeply committed to the mission and um these animals that are in our care um they have no one else and um, it's us and we are their voice um and we have a duty to provide exceptional care to them and um and also to our community and so it's difficult to turn that off but i do try to compartmentalize it and make sure that there's times that my staff know i'm not available and only to call if it's an emergency. And also I've just been able to really bring in wonderful staff that are um, fantastic leaders in their own right. And so I have that confidence that nothing's gonna fall through the cracks, that um, when we've got layers of, of really good, strong leaders at this organization, and, and that definitely helps um, with mentalizing and creating that space. So I'm not just thinking about work all the time. Um, but I think one of the biggest things for me is regular exercise. Um, 
and I try to get up very early every morning and um, I just exercise my basement if it's bad weather or outside if it's good weather. And and honestly, that's just been one of the best things, not even just the physical, that's completely a separate, but just mental, emotional. Um, and I feel like I can uh, get through the day a lot better. Um, and have better mental clarity uh, if if I do that first thing in the morning and just create that time for myself before everybody else eats up and you know because then once once the children are awake you're launched out of a cannon and you don't know which direction you're going to go it's bad Al you know it's every day is an adventure <laughs> uh, I'm uh, 100% in agreement I think that exercise has not been taught well enough as um, really the sort of the best thing you can do for your mental health, mm -hmm. um, you know, above sort of anything else. But getting in that time uh, is so important every day. I know for me um, it is, and I think it is for most people, <laughs> but most people don't do it, you know, and most people don't take the time. But, you know, if you get to a certain place in life, you learn that, you know, I know that I can't function at the same level. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get the exercise time in as well. So, well, and, and that just with right all all your care. I mean, exercise is incredibly important, and um, just having that time where your, you know, your mind is just focused on you know being outdoors, not not worrying about work or or um, just the the endorphins and everything you get from that. I definitely uh, uh, agree that it's it's a huge mental health. Um, Peace. And I, I recently read an article how exercise, they say, is now um, more effective than any kind of um, drugs for depression, anxiety, that um, aerobic exercise, especially when you're breaking a sweat and getting your heart rate. So so I think we're just beginning to understand how important it is um, for mental and emotional health as well. And then for me also, um, you know, doing things that I didn't do as well in my 20s and 30s, like drinking water. You got to drink your water you all day long. And uh, and I've, I've been eating a plant-based diet for um, over 20 years. And uh, so that's something to, uh, you know, getting all your vegetables and and that kind of thing. All of that matters uh, when you get to age. And, you know, when you're younger, you can get through, you know, eating nachos and <laughs> yeah you get away with it, right <laughs> with you it always does so <laughs> i agree <laughs> okay so the last three questions are the rapid fire questions supposedly um but they're not hard but they should be fun we'll see um so you don't really uh practice mainly as an attorney now, right? You're more just a, you're not just, you're a director, you're, it's a different role. I'm probably drawing still on some of your uh, skills from law school, but also other skills other than, you know, researching things on Lexus, I'm sure. <laughs> so, but if you didn't go to law school, um, you know, what, what career would you have got into? You know, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm so glad I went to law school. I think that it's a wonderful foundation for whatever you do. And it helps you to analyze a lot of information very quickly to distill the essential components and key arguments, key points, um, to be an analytical thinker. Um, and also to when you're writing i always know when i'm reading something a lawyer has written you know you're like oh here look here's the key points at the top of the email and buried at the bottom and so i need to just for those reasons alone and and again just for all that um my experience in law school the friends that i made um lessons i learned i would do it again and i wouldn't change a thing Honest. Great. And what is the one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you graduated law school? Well, you were talking earlier uh, about planning, and I think I would have spent some more time in my third year of law school talking to people um, that were in their careers and just 
getting their knowledge and wisdom um, and really maybe set out a better plan for where I think to go. And a lot of my career was just, I felt falling into one thing. But the next is the opportunity presented. I don't really have a strategy. And um, and part of that right, is the beauty of life because, you know, get married, you have children, you have things happen and um, and so um, I have to have some spontaneity in that plan, but I think I would have spent more time, I wish I had, uh, talking to um, people and um, getting their feedback and guidance or well charted a course for where I wanted to go. Yeah, and one thing we did discuss though too, just prior to the podcast, is no matter how much planning you do, you really can't predict where you're gonna go. Right. And so I think you you never know what's coming. And so you do have to have a bit of um hard edge or a bit of ability to um, transition, right? And to go with the flow a little bit as things change over time. So absolutely. Resilient. There we go. Resiliency. Yeah. Resiliency and being adaptive are, are, I think, two of the most important qualities for any uh, emerging lawyer. <laughs> yeah. We don't even know where our profession's going now that, you know, AI is taking over. So, yeah. What an, what an interesting development, I think, for all of us in every aspect of our life mm-hmm. to see what happens. Uh, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> the last question, uh, Risa, is would you recommend a career in law to women considering law school today? Well, as I said, I, I am a very, I have had a very unconventional career, um, but I, I would absolutely recommend it. Um, I think it really prepares you for anything, especially if you want to go into policy. I know many people got a master, get masters in public policy, um, and I, that's a wonderful um, degree to have under your belt. But I, I really feel strongly about the skills that um, a law degree gives you, and and then you can use it. And so I have friends that have gone into fundraising and um, political work, and um, are now are leading um, corporations. And so you just really see how it it's it's a great it's a great degree. And it will open doors for you. And so I, I think it's a very worthy investment of time and money. Then agree. And Risa, on that, I thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Rosie. And it was a lot of fun to talk to you. You've been listening to Success in Brief with your host, Roseanne Felicello. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others. You can catch prior episodes at www.fellacellolaw.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more.